You are listening to High Shelf Gaming. This is a show where we talk about board games and role-playing games and gaming conventions. If this is what you're looking for, please keep listening. You can always find us on our website, Facebook group, Facebook page, or on Twitter and Twitch and Discord, all under the name High Shelf Gaming. Super easy to join the community, and we look forward to meeting you. Hey everyone, this is David again with High Shelf Gaming, and as always, I'm joined by the bestial, Rich Wisniewski. Wow, that is great, because I am surrounded by fantasy creatures at this moment. (laughs) I was prepping, I put on my Canadian tuxedo today for a very special recording, and I lined up all my minis. So I just, I'm totally in the zone. I got my 15 pound rule book here with me. (laughs) I am ready to go today, Dave. Yes, I cannot wait. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Logan Bonner from Paizo. Dude, thank you, thank you so much for coming on to High Shelf. Uh, thank you for having me. And I want to clarify the book is more like four and a half pounds. <laughs> <laughs> he knew what book I was talking about. Yeah, though, didn't yeah, he? yeah. It's a, it's a solid, it's a solid tome. It's good. It's it was so am- good. It's amazing. It literally is amazing. I, the, your shipping bill to Gen Con. I, you know, I, I know you're not on the shipping, the logistics part, but that had to be just massive. <laughs> I, I'm not on the shipping part, but I did uh, get to restock a whole bunch of those books. Uh, oh, yeah. One of the days. Oh. So. Yo, everybody came home with muscles. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> you got your workouts in for sure. That's awesome. Well, Logan, just by way of introduction, can you kind of describe to the audience a little bit what your background is or, or what kind of what kind of games you like to play just so we can kind of get a sense of who you are as a gamer? Gamer Chops. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I kind of got started in hobby games with Magic back when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Then I got into uh, RPGs, starting with like a a weird DN3.5 slash D20 modern mashup in college. Wow. And started playing games there. Then I moved out to work in Seattle for Wizards of the Coast in about 2006. And so I... I play uh, RPGs. I especially like story games and quite a few board games, just a little bit of everything. I'm not really, there isn't that often that I get just super into one game or system and just play the hell out of it. Yeah. There are a couple, like uh, I have a whole bunch of Marvel Legendary, but that's mostly just because I want to have all the Marvel superheroes. (laughs) Yeah. You you want to collect it. You know, I, oh man, you're you're a gamer after your own heart. Like I'm exactly (laughs) the same way. Started in magic, ended up where I'm at, you know, and just play all kinds of different things. So it's really cool that you've got kind of the same approach to gaming. That's, that's really neat. If you want to get into magic, I recommend having friends who work on magic. And so they just get boxes of it for free because that really helps <laughs> make it economical. Indeed. <laughs> it's an expensive hobby for sure. Yeah. Much cheaper than heroin. <laughs> it should be obvious at this point, folks, what we're going to be talking about. But Logan, why don't you introduce our topic for today? Uh, we're going to be talking about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Yeah. Yay. Oh man, I'm so excited for this. We've done Pathfinder beta test. We've done all kinds of stuff. I'm so excited to talk about this with you today. I guess really to just get us started, I mean, your name is right here on the cover of the book. That's true. What, what role did you play in putting together this book? I mean, it says it's like a 600 page tome. I imagine yeah. you didn't write all 600 pages, but some of them. No, I probably wrote a few hundred pages of those. God. Uh, the... <laughs> This was a really long process, um, and 
even the bestiary, which usually the bestiary has so many different authors that everybody writes a tiny share of it. But yeah. even the bestiary, I probably wrote like a fifth to a quarter of the original oh. stat blocks. Some of that was for the some of that was for the playtest, and then we you know updated them for the final rules. Yeah, uh, you really did this twice. You did it once for the playtest, and then all over again. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And there were there were enough changes that uh, we cut we kept some of our words, but there was still a whole lot of additional work in that uh, in that year between the playtest and the final. And the way the timelines work, there's some of that where it's like, well, we've already sent the playtest to the printer, but we need to write all this stuff based on it right now. So before it's <laughs> even come out, before anybody said anything, it's like, well, we got to write some new spells and we'll we'll change them later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, that's kind of the thing. You know, all of us have day jobs, right? And you, this is your day job. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes I, I write scopes of work for work. So I write a lot. And it's always great when I write one and then the customer comes back and says, I would like to change these 15 things. That that may be different for you guys because it's it's freaking Pathfinder, man. So if the community <laughs> comes up with a, a thought or a, a whether they like or whether they dislike something, that must actually be kind of fun then to go back and rework your work. Yeah, it's, but there's nobody in charge of it because they aren't, uh, you know, directly paying you to do it. So they all have different opinions on what the changes should be. <laughs> I was, go- oh, you're getting into my next question of like, how do you do that? How do you make that decision? Because you have some fans that like it this way and other fans that like it that way. And yeah. you, you guys obviously got tons of feedback during the playtest. So that, that'd be really interesting right. to know. How did you mind the store when you had kids fighting over the same piece of candy? Yeah, well, the main thing we did differently for this playtest, since it was such a big deal, we did a series of surveys so we could really, the stuff we were really unsure about, we could ask direct questions and have people rank things and have people answer exactly the kind of information we needed. So a lot of the like smaller stuff that we pick up through message boards and that kind of thing, a lot of those are kind of smaller judgment calls, but like the big bones of the system, we really wanted to say like, okay, what's the closest we can get to a consensus on this? Mm-hmm. Do, do you have a prescient example in mind of, all right, there was this one rule that was really a big question mark over at Paizo and the audience or the, the player base really gave you guys a lot of great guidance on? The resonance system was one of the big ones where it was really experimental and we yeah. weren't really entirely sure it would work. Um, yeah. And that's one that we ended up removing from the game entirely because of, of feedback. When we started producing the playtest text, we really kind of said like, okay, well, let's go with the the most out there version of this, because we know we're going to have a final where we can reel things back in if we feel like that's necessary. Right. Yeah. Play test folks, not final. Right. So it's like, Hey, these are, these are ideas that we have fleshed out. We've put real time into them, right? They're not, right. uh, They're not just off the cuff ideas. These are developed ideas, play them, see what you like. And, and that feedback really instructed, okay, this is not, this is not something that you guys wanted to put into the final version. Yeah. And resonance is one where it was unpopular enough through the surveys. We knew we were going to not not be able to put it in the way it was. So we did a we did a second phase test that kind of swapped how resonance worked, made it a, a little simpler, tried to make it more of a carrot instead of a stick approach. Mm-hmm. And that was one where the the feedback was really interesting because some people liked part of those changes. Some people liked different parts of those changes, but when you get those responses that are really split, you kind of can say like, well, because nobody is really stumping for any one 
option here really hard, we know that it's still not really working. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, and, there's not a there's not a kernel in there that everybody says, yes, this part is great. Yeah, and there's a lot of things where it's like, if a lot of people are kind of middling on it, but a small number of people really, really love it, that tends to be stronger than when everybody's opinion is split all over the place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like I think one of the big things that this edition brings to the table, and I know that everybody who's played this or heard of this has probably heard about this part, is the three-action economy. Yes. It's so cool. And yeah. it's I, I imagine that you guys have got a lot of great feedback about, we love this core component, but maybe you got some feedback of, yeah, but on these edges... These edge cases, uh, there's a there's a place where this doesn't feel right or something yeah. along those lines. Was there any of that kind of feedback? And did that change how you deployed the three action economy in the final version? Um, the three action economy is one of those things that's kind of the opposite of resonance and that we had really high confidence in it from the start. Yeah. And it was one of those things. Like, it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was something where it's like, we're going to put this out there. If people really don't hate this, if, if people really hate this, we're going to be very surprised and we kind of have to redo the entire game. Right. That right. was one of those things. It's like if this is wrong, then everything is wrong, and we wow. kind of are yeah. It's a really... it's a main tent stake. It holds up so much of the game. What right. a crazy thing to think of that it was just such a core that if it was a bomb, it was like oh no, back to the drawing board. We're yeah. going to start over from the foundation. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's like if that if that bombs, I you know, can we make the final release date? But that's one of those things. It's like we didn't think that was going to happen, and you know yeah. the the results yeah. proved that. I think the things that. There's a lot of uh, little questions about like, is an individual thing balanced for the right number of actions? Mostly like with the three actions, we had a pretty good sense of where those boundaries are because one action is anything that we can pretty much give you unfettered access to. You can do as much as you want. And then two actions is like, well, we don't want you to do this twice in the single turn. Right. Yeah, but, it takes a little longer can, than, than three seconds or two seconds to pull this one off. So, yeah, yeah, but it's still something you can do something else in addition to. We we use three action very sparingly. That tends to be like spells that are going to reshape the whole battlefield because you can end up in situations if you had... There was, I think at one point we tried like a three action fireball and it was like, well... Oh. I can, this works okay, but it would be really nice if I could move and then cast this. Right. Uh, Fireball. Right. (laughs) Or pull out my material components and then cast this, you know, if I had them in my, you know, stowed away or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Our favorite magical spell. Exactly. (laughs) And I wanted to say, you guys did a really clever thing in there of saying, well, there are some spells that we want to give you action flexibility. Mm-hmm. To say I there's a there's a one action version that is weaker, but it still lets you do the spell yeah. um, or, you know, two and three. That is just, you know, balloons, the capabilities of that power or that spell. And as a player, that's really cool because you can look at that and go, all right, there's this there's this card I can play and I get to decide how much juice I'm going to give to that card. Yeah. And balance that decision against all the other things about where do I want to end up at the end of the round? What, you know, who all is going to be in range when I do this thing? Like, that's all really, I think, just great, brilliant game design. Yeah, but you'll you also notice we don't do that very often because um, oh, yeah. if, if you do that too many times, you end up with uh, way too high complexity. So stuff like heal is such a staple that's like, okay, we want the heal spell to be really interesting and have some cool options, yeah. but we're not going to do that with, you know, lightning bolt also has three different actions and, right. um, you Decision know, paralysis. detect magic has three different actions. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cause then I could see a player going, ah, do I want to do this and then this or this? Yeah. I could absolutely see that. Like 
that's really wise to say, okay, we like this thing, but we only like it sparingly. That's, uh, that's, I liked that when I played it at the, at conventions and I like it when I read it, it's like, okay, I can see where this is going, but also to your point, I'm not overloading them with a, too many decisions. Yeah. As I was poking around one thing that I, you know, okay. First, let me explain something that everybody who listens already knows is I grew up on the uh, red box, AD and D type uh, <laughs> life of D and D. And I'm not too sure there's anything else after AD and D from Watsi or you know from <laughs> folks. I mean, sure, I dabbled a little in second, but you know, it's all kid stuff after that. Yeah. So you know, the Pathfinder when I when I signed up to playtest was really a new experience to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reading through the book, and I'm going to ask some questions here, Day Day, that I'm sure maybe you go, oh. Everyone should know that. Well, I don't. <laughs> so, and we might have some fans that fit into my category too. I loved the heritages, and that relates yeah. in the sense that I saw with the idea of the ancient blooded dwarf, which my son loves to play dwarves, is the call on ancient blood. And that falls in. Now, we get out of the idea of the one, two, and three step, but we move into the category of things that you get to use. And it has that ability to um, kind of flip that one time. Um, I'm not too sure I saw a bunch of those, those reaction moments happening through a lot of the um, different heritages. Wow. What an interesting take to say, it's not just, I can do this all the time, which is what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. How did that score with everybody? And was that something that was previous or did y'all make that up with second edition? The, The dwarf part specifically? Or just the idea of those those uses of the reaction uses, like a heritage power, like the yeah. whole concept of heritage yeah. is new, right? It is. Oh, it um, is. Yeah. Well, it sort of takes. So, Pathfinder First Edition races kind of had, you know, here's your backpack full of different features you get from your race, and a lot of them had some kind of weird story implications. Like every dwarf hates these certain, you know, enemy races. And is good at these certain things. And we kind of wanted to say, okay, here's what is intrinsic to being a dwarf. And then here's what is kind of cultural and things you learn. And that's kind of that latter category is where the feats come into play. And then the prior category is where things like heritages live. Because yeah. those are kind of like, this is part of my you know physiology in right. most cases. Yeah, just being a dwarven child gets you to access to these sorts of things if you right. develop in that direction. Yeah, I, I'm really curious... Because you've taken this heritage and ancestry approach, there's a lot more flexibility now for the half races because yeah. it's it's really cool that I can say, look, I'm a I'm a half orc or a half elf, and I can draw from the the abilities of the other races. I imagine that you guys are going to expand this as you go forward, so it's not just half elves and half orcs, but like. Is there going to be half dwarves? Is there going to be half other other creatures, other other races, playable races? Uh, we haven't done so because we're kind of basing a lot of this in the world of Galarian. We're kind of sticking at least early on to the ones that are kind of important peoples in the world. So, for mm-hmm. example, in we've announced uh, some of the stuff that's going to be in the advanced players guide that's coming out next year, Gen Con. Yes, and in there we're going to have some heritages that are not restricted to just one ancestry. So that would be like the Tiefling and the uh, Asimar and the uh, the Dampir, who's like kind of part vampire, but like 
a lot of different humanoids can be vampires. So mm. the anybody can take the dump here. Nice. So that's what, like one of the spots that we can go to with it. And those are not like the, the half elf and the half orc in the core rulebook are just for human. Though we kind of we do say like, hey, if you want to do a variant rule, you can have you know a half elf dwarf or whatever it is. The intent is that they're going to be fully kind of separate from any individual ancestry. Yeah, I, as a player and as a GM, even uh, to be able to see that and like, okay, this is how they break these apart allows me the a kind of a tool set that if I wanted to make something custom, it's very easy for me to conceptualize mm-hmm. how I would go about making a half gnome or half dwarf. Yeah. Whereas before in the past, I, mm, well, <laughs> you know, I would. And, and it means you can use the feats that are already in there. Yeah. And just say you can take these. Yeah. Yeah. I really like it. It just seems like. With 2E, there's a lot of, I mean, obviously there's a lot of player customization, but it seems like you guys really took took it upon yourselves to give GMs a lot of game customization to say, all right, you want to make some stuff? Cool. Here's a framework and you can kind of imagine how this framework could be applied in other ways to influence your game so you could do some very easy homebrew that still kind of fits into the balance of Pathfinder. Yeah, one of the things we kind of wanted to do was show the structure of the game to kind of build it a little more deliberately than first edition and to kind of make it a little more obvious so that people could understand it better and customize it better. We're we're still working on the game mastery guide right now and doing some of the kind of finishing touches on Ooh, that. Next year's coming up. Uh, it's mm-hmm, coming mm-hmm. soon. A lot of that book is about kind of, you know, how you customize the game, how you build things for the game. It's got a whole bunch of variants of that kind of stuff. And a lot of that is way easier than it used to be just because we kind of built things with modularity in mind. Right. Uh, whereas in first edition, there was a lot of stuff that was not built to be modular in the initial rule set that then had to kind of be built so that it could replace what was there in a more kind of complicated way. Just because of, you know, there wasn't a spot where it could just easily slot in as well. And I'm going to get really sacrilegious here. Uh Uh-oh. The (laughs) dice. You know, we talk to a lot Mm -hmm. of developers in different game systems. And, you know, some of them are, what, 6 and 10 based? You know, a D6 and a D10. And some are just D10s. You know what I mean? With some other items. Of course, Pathfinder. Still all the polyhedral dice, right? Did I say that right, Dave? Yeah. All the polyhedral dice are being used. Yeah. Is that even a concept for consideration when you guys sat down to look at going to second edition, seeing a lot of other games go with less dice and you managing them differently? Mm-hmm. Or is that just one of those tenants you don't touch? I think in our case, it was one we knew we weren't going to change. There were a few things like we knew we could change a lot. We knew we wanted to keep a similar style of play. We knew we didn't want to change the world, mm. but we knew... There were just a few mechanical things that were just a little too too big of sacred cows to be to be thrown out. So yeah. I'd say using the full polyhedral dice was one of them. One through twenty levels was going to be one of them. Oh yeah, having yeah. having a class based system. Those are all things. Is like okay, well, we know we aren't going to go so far as to change this. Oh my right? god, I can't even think about you changing the class system. <laughs> you just blew my mind. Yeah, because you guys have to have sessions where it's like you're allowed to say anything you want. Well, well, it's right. it's interesting because you guys did change the race section, right? I mean, race has been, you know, uh, dwarves and elves. And it, yeah, and yeah. changed it to ancestry, wrote a lot of new rules around that, a lot of new modularity around that. So it's really cool that you guys said, all right, we have these table stakes. They have to be present. Right. But actually, here's an area that has been present since the beginning. 
and wow, we can change right. that. Yeah. Yeah, and we've changed that, but you can still make your dwarf fighter, right? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah as, as long as the, the final version of the table feels uh, feels similar to what you could make before, like that's really what we were going for. Yeah. Um, like, the, know, the specifics, I think you have a lot more flexibility. Like the classes aren't structured the same as they were in first edition, but mm-hmm. the class is still there. It still plays in a similar way, but hopefully more fulfilling is our kind of our goal. You know, I think where where we're dancing around is you've kept it thematically true, right? The themes Mm -hmm. are still present. The details might be a little different, but all of the themes of the game are still vibrant and alive. Could you say a little bit more maybe about the intention or the the themes that, that you expect an average player would run into when playing Pathfinder? Like... Yeah, I think the the main ones we had is we still wanted it to be you know high adventure, high action. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to make sure that you still had a lot of choices because we know that's something that our fan base really liked about first edition was the the sheer amount of customizability they had. Um, so we wanted oh, to yeah. Yeah, yeah we we wanted to do that but kind of plan for it in a little more structured way so that it was. Um, easier to figure out how all those things worked together yeah which was one of the tricky things that a lot of especially new players had with first edition was like oh i have to pick what now and then especially when you got especially when you joined pathfinder later on with Mm -hmm. so many supplements it was like wait 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 (laughs) where do i begin well you remember interviewing cody and he introduced his wife to pathfinder she went and devoured all the material and became like this (laughs) super min maxer yeah oh yeah yeah exactly and i think that that's you know that's impressive, but not every player is going to do that. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's really smart for you guys to know, okay, well, when we did Pathfinder one, we ended up here. We mm. want to end up with all that same diversity, but we, we want to be smarter about how we introduce it into the world. That's yeah. really, that's really cool. I like that take. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things with, with like the rarity system, for example, part of that is there. So the table can manage the level of complexity they want in their game and the number of common options is going to be over the whole game line relatively low compared to the first edition where effectively they're all common options. We, we want to kind of have something where it's like, okay, what level of complexity are you willing to deal with? And to kind of say, if you want to include more stuff, we want you to do it mindfully rather than just kind of saying, oh, well, I guess everything's in because there's not really any clear way for me to, to change that without making a whole bunch of spot decisions. Yeah, I like that approach. Yeah, because the, then it gives the person running the games like, okay, these things I, I do eventually want to have them show up, mm-hmm. but maybe not in the first five sessions. Right. And it also kind of gives them a little more freedom to be like, to treat it as a reward where it's like, well, this thing isn't normally in a game, but you have accomplished something and therefore you now have it. Right. No, that's that's really cool. I like that quite a bit. All right, and I, as I was bo- oh, poking, oh, I don't mean to change the subject. Can I change the subject? <laughs> yeah, do it. Okay. As I was poking around, one thing that really stuck out to me that I thought was very, I think you used the word mindful, and that made me go, gosh, you know what? There's so much in here that I think you guys were being mindful of character creation, talking about characters. And as I'm flipping through there, I found the X card supplement. Mm-hmm. Or the little tag about the X card. And I thought, man, that was really great for them to introduce. Because number one, you do get some people that just play at home. And they play with the same five people they always play with. And, and they really don't know about lines or veils. And they don't know about the idea of playing with many different people. Whereas yeah. I love playing at cons. 
Yeah. And player so safety. for me, that player, player safety is important. When I yeah. DM a game, I actually try and write things very neutral. So I don't put people in a position to start talking about torture or yeah. any other, um, you know, let's just, let's just say dark things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a very good addition into the book and could be expanding people's, um, you know, thought process. And so I, I felt that was really a good mix. Now, that was one little thing I caught out of there. When you guys sat down, was that something you guys brought in from your own past play moments? Or was there someone that was actually kind of getting the piece of the the pulse of the community? That's something that I brought in. Uh, Like I said, I like to play a lot of story games. And so I've been somewhat involved in that community for a long time. And so I I had been seeing, uh, you know, safety tools for years and years at this point. Right. And the goal of putting them in this book is really... There are a whole bunch of, sto- of of safety tools. There are a whole bunch of uh, of good practices for ensuring you know a, a safe and welcoming environment for your game. So I wanted to make sure that this book, because we know that Pathfinder is going to be a gateway game for a lot of people, yes, that this yeah. this can be people's kind of first glimpse into that. And if they want to look into it more deeply, they can do so. And this will give you enough to kind of get started. And that's also one of the reasons that the Pathfinder baseline is in there, because, you know, I, I think a lot of us have had that experience where we're playing with some randos and one of them has, you know, never played an RPG or has played in some kind of weird uh, group full of gross weirdos who are like, <laughs> it's torture time, everybody. Yeah, I've been in that game. I am glad I'm not in that game anymore. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's one of those things where, like, if you're a GM or a player... If the game can give you some backup, I feel that's very important. Uh, you don't want to feel like, well, am I the only one who feels this way? You don't want to kind of be out to see. You want to be able to point to something and be like, oh, okay, I'm I'm not being the weird one here. Right. Uh, that's, that's so important because, yeah, I think a lot of people, especially these days, I mean, Rich, in your day, you guys read the book as like, I don't know, a, a general suggestion guide. <laughs> <laughs> All rules were flexible. Yeah. Whatever the DM wanted was the real rule. Yeah, exactly. And I think that these days there's so much development and there's so much clarity that's included in these games that a lot of a lot of tables look at that book as gospel. Mm-hmm. And that they don't like to deviate, they don't like changes, they don't like homebrew. So I think it's really wise that you guys include just a handful of things that are maybe not like Pathfinder specific or, or uh, uh, you know, fantasy role play specific, but just general, hey, this is good behavior, right? Yes. Yeah. And by the way, Shelfies, they did a great job referencing the uh, creator of the X card system in their little shout out blurb. So again, another great thing is just giving them, you know, credit where credit's due. Yeah. And, and John was actually at Gen Con. So we, uh, we, I, I got to meet him for the first time and we all signed a book for him. So that was really cool. Excellent. Aww, that's so cool. That's so cool. But yeah, it also, um, like, mechanical precision is something people are really used to for Pathfinder. But one of our focuses with this book was also to make sure that it made it clear that, like, how you actually play the game, how how it's a social activity, we wanted to put that a little more at the forefront so it didn't feel like it was kind of as, as, like, purely mechanical as it used to be. And that also is yep. kind of behind putting a lot more decisions in the GM's hands, being more explicit about like, okay, you're not going to re- use these rules exactly 100% as written all the time. That is not the best way to have a game. 
uh, and to kind of give people some tools and some pointers so they can make their experience really uh, a lot more rewarding by accepting that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think and you see that a lot through the book because you guys are really emphasizing uh, not just the encounter mode and the, even the exploration mode, which I think is common to most games, but to really trumpet things like downtime for your characters to, to talk about other aspects of play outside of we are in the middle of the dungeon or we're in the middle of the conflict right now to acknowledge that these characters have lives outside of this primary conflict and to give them tools to explore that, you know, just kind of reemphasizes that same kind of theme that you're going for of, you know, expanding what it means to play Pathfinder. Oh, and and I think there's even, you know, as I look, as as I was slipping through, blah, 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 going through stuff, the, um, and, and again, again, I say things where, if this is a first edition thing, everybody please forgive me. <laughs> but as I got to the section about the age of lost omens was, is that all new? I, by the way, I want to play in the saga lands. I, uh, I totally <laughs> got a little bit of flavor text yeah. and I got a little picture and I'm like, that's where I want to play. Yeah. Is that a new world or is this a continuation of a pathfinder world? Uh, it's a continuation of the world. The first edition though, was kind of meant to be setting neutral, the core book. Right. And part of that was because it was based on 3.5. Part of that was because, you know, the world was still relatively new. But now it's been kind of developed over so long that we kind of wanted to give you a little more of a of a kickstart if you did want to use our world. Um, or even if it's somebody who's going to do their own world, it will give them enough to kind of get started to contextualize all the stuff that's in the rules. Uh, so, yeah, this is not a new setting. It's a little broader than how we might have presented the core setting previously. Like it covers like a larger portion of the world than we might have if we had put this in the core rulebook, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the the size of the book is uh, is indicative of that, right? I mean, you guys yeah. have a lot of world to detail in this oh book. Oh my gosh, not I could totally GM out a, uh, an adventure. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Looking at things, there's mm-hmm. enough meat there that I got. Okay, these are the these are the factions. This is what I want to do here. This is the environment I want to work in. Yeah. Um, it was really cool to see. Well, and and that's also something that you know, if you're making your character and you've read this section, it's going to give you some more hooks to kind of link yourself into the world and show the GM and the other players what you're really interested in. Mm-hmm. So uh, having it not be too dry and having some more story stuff in there, I think is really going to help people with that part of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed completely, completely. Now I, I do want to pick on a little thing that I saw in that section mm-hmm. about uh, guns and gunsmithing. I yeah. don't see any actual guns in the core book. I hope that they're coming soon. Trademark. We have not announced when they're coming. They've been okay. a part of our world for a year, for a, a while. But I think one of the things we're really trying to be mindful of is to put different parts of the setting in books where it's appropriate for them to appear. Because I think one of the things we want to avoid is just like, well, here's the book that has guns and summoning and making undead and just kind of everything is just kind of a, a hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. Especially like... The, the Advanced Player's Guide is kind of one of those books that is a little more like broad like that, but we don't want to put out too many books that aren't kind of telling you what they're about and kind of being consistent and fully realizing one corner of the world. So I think if we're doing something on guns, it's more likely to be like, okay, you want to use guns? 
we're going to give you lots of options. We're going to give you all the gun stuff you need. So if you do want to use guns in your game, you just need this book. It's not spread, you know, right. over 18 books, you know. Yeah, and that's where you get to some other game systems out there. We'll do like master index editions where mm-hmm. it's like, all right, there's this concept and here's the five books where it's referenced. Go to your library <laughs> and yeah. pull out all five books. Really smart of you guys to kind of decide, look, we know there's things that you all want to see, like guns or what have you, but it's going to come in a book that is all encompassing for that topic instead of doling it out piecemeal throughout the life cycle of the of the system. Yeah, that's our hope. Awesome. I like that. I like that quite a bit. All right. So I, I keep just bringing up stuff I'm finding because it, <laughs> it feels so new to me, right? I love the idea of talismans. Oh. When I got to that section, I was like, oh my gosh, why haven't I ever thought about this before? <laughs> um, is that an, a 1E thing also coming back into 2E or was that something new? Uh, that was brand new. That was uh, one of Jason Bowman's ideas uh, that we incorporated in the... <laughs> Uh, we incorporated that in the playtest. There they were called trinkets and they were a little more limited. So for the final, we were like, okay, these need a little more juice. So we made them kind of like a little less restrictive and a little more powerful. The kind of idea there was, you know, spellcasters have scrolls and stuff like that that are really cool and let them cast more spells. But what do martial characters have that's in a similar spot? Like they have a few potions, but what about things that are really like, I use these to for my attacks to do extra stuff. I'd use these for athletic feats. So that's kind of the origin behind those. I'm going to be strong like bull. I'm getting the bull one. So yeah. I can just shove everybody <laughs> over. That's where I'm going, guys. And I'm going to have like 15 of them on my body. Well, there's a limit, gonna, right? You oh, can't. There's a limit. Sorry. <laughs> How did I miss the limit? Where did I miss the limit at? One, one these product. aren't like Pokemon where you collect them all. <laughs> I want them all. <laughs> But I you can swap them out. You can put in a new one when you we bust one during a during an encounter. Yeah. Yes. And I yeah. have a feeling that was around in uh, first edition with the hardness and things, you know, breaking. Well, yeah. Well, that's all that's all new too. in, in is second it really? Edition. Yeah. Is talking about equipment uh, wear and tear for sure. I love that part. I was like, that is so neat that, you know, because obviously you get your plus one longsword, right? And you use that till you get your plus two. then you use that till you get the vorpal sword you know you just kind of work your way up progressively normally in the old rich AD&D world this kind of makes it to where you might need to carry a backup or two every now and then yeah the so hardness and and stuff like that was in first edition but it was kind of it wasn't super user friendly so yeah i guess i'd never played with it so i just yeah, I, yeah, I think okay, it's, it was glossed over pretty regularly. I think a lot of people just don't want to deal with that level of complexity. But the reason it kind of is a little more prominent in second edition is because of how we wanted to do shields. We wanted them to be kind of a more active thing. <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, you have to decide to use it. <laughs> right. Exactly. You, you don't just get it, the, the bonus from it all the time. Yeah. And then because we know a lot of people are going to understand the system because of shields and we also want to do more with like the crafting skills so you can repair things so we want to make it feel like it was all interlocked and then things like spells that make walls that have hardness at hit points then it's much easier to understand those because more people at the table kind of get that system right great idea because that's always been one of the problems i have with barriers that people try and break through that's the only time you ever run into the hardness rules Mm -hmm. And so everybody has to stop and open up the book and remind themselves what hardness means and what hit points are for that object and all that kind of stuff. Whereas, no, 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 no. You use this all the time for the shield. Mm -hmm. And it's the same mechanic that you've been using every time you get into a fight. I do have to ask, do you guys see people just like 
stuffing 20 shields into a bag of holding and like just using them as like I kind of imagine in like a uh, maybe a dystopian world where <laughs> adventurers use their shields until they're broken, discard them, pull out another shield and use that. And then like months later, there's this surf scavenging class of people <laughs> that go and find all the broken oh shields, yeah. gather them up and like put them back together and they go to town and they have their little mat rolled out and they've got their shields. And then the, that same adventurer comes along and says, ah, I've gone through 20 shields. I need to buy more shields. And they're <laughs> buying the shields they just used, putting them back into their bag of holding. Like I, I, I know that there's a sense of like, Hey, this thing has a life now and you need to be careful about it. And it has uh, durability to it. But I also know players will just say, eh, what's a bag of holding of crossbows that keeps me from having to reload crossbows, you know, yeah, like a bag yeah. of holding of full of <laughs> shields keeps me having to not worry about durability. Is that, I mean, like, I know that's obviously not the intention, but that is a possible player answer to that system. Yeah, it is. I, th I think we also did kind of put a little more in the book about, you know, supplies are not necessarily infinite. We don't mm. assume you can buy as many things as you want. But, you know, I think if an adventurer is rich enough, they can probably find a way to get, you know, uh, two dozen shields to just have in their bag of holding. But sure. we also, at a certain level, those are not really going to hold up to the damage you're taking and you really want a magic shield anyway because damage right. <laughs> is going to kind of keep going up as you go up in level. Right, I yeah, think that's they're just going to drop the rule. If that if that's where they're going as a group, they'll just drop the rule. Oh, like as a GM, it's like, all right, guys, okay, okay, I get yeah. it. So yeah. let's just drop it. Yeah, I, I could see that. But I kind of like, I'm kind of in love with this idea of a little surf guy that just like wanders <laughs> around finding battlefields. Like, all right, I'm going to pick up these 30 shields. Yeah. <laughs> Logan, wait together. till we play a game and I roll up my character. It's going to be the surf of yeah. shields. Shield reseller. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Shield, uh, uh, what is it, like resurfacer or something like that. Yeah, you're not going to fight anybody. You're just going to wander around behind the fighter and pick up the broken. <laughs> my whole purpose yeah. now you know a little bit on the book because again we talk you know people want to know about utilizing the book this is not a dnd folks you do not have to flip <laughs> back and forth 18 times trying to build your character i felt it was laid out incredibly well when you guys go through that how do you um, do, or do you have how many characters have you built during the play testing back in the shop for this uh, the weird thing is I personally didn't build a whole lot of characters because I ended up running a lot of the playtests. So I was doing a lot of, you know, pulling maps and putting GM together side. monster documents and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't personally build a whole ton. That was mostly the players. But um, oh. but there was quite a bit. And a lot of those players, like, the book was not together. So they had to kind of, you know, they didn't get any convenient organization. They had they had a bit of a harder task ahead of them. And sometimes they'd be like, hey, you haven't written this thing yet, but I need it. So we had to kind of do some of that from time to time, kind of some spot oh, design. Interesting. interesting. And I think it fits in really well. The, you know, the book is big. We talked about it being four and a half pounds mm -hmm. and over 600 pages. But as I look at it and, you know, went through it, you definitely, I, I want to say you could live in the first hundred pages, right? And have your character built. 
Uh, I think I think largely, at least at, at initial character building and low levels, I think eventually you're going to end up referring to magic items more often and potentially spells. But sure. uh, most of the the basic character building stuff is uh, is toward the front of the book. I'm going to say, but I'm looking real quick now. By page 32, you're off a of character building and into answers, ancestries, and background. Yeah, and you know, all depending, you know, you got to get through that section. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's very well put out to where it shouldn't be daunting. Someone should not look at this book and go, oh, my gosh, how can I play this game? Right. Yeah. And I want to say that on the spells front, the magic front, I'm a huge fan of the magic styles Mm -hmm. as opposed to magic spell lists. The the traditions. Yeah. To say, look, you you are into that. Yeah. You you're into arcane magic or you're into primal magic. You're into divine magic. And and it's just it helps me as a as a game master explain to a new player all right this is the type of magic that this class does yeah. and and this is what they get access to and here's why that matters and here's what that means instead of well you're this class and here's your list and it's kind of arbitrarily a little bit different than this other class that also has access to the same sort of type of the same spells yeah it's I love that. It's so much nicer and really lets the spell list be simplified, I think. Yeah, one one of the things we – that's another thing I think uh, ends up uh, showing showing the structure a little better because if you looked at some of the old spell lists, it's like, oh, you could get this really cool thing, but you had to find it somewhere in that spell list. Right. And you could say like, well, the witch gets this and the wizard doesn't get this, but you kind of have to pick through it to find some of those things. Whereas now it kind of says, well, okay – you use the same spell list as this other class, but we're going to explicitly tell you in your class features that you get these additional things. So, for example, the wizard uses the arcane list, but an arcane sorcerer's bloodline might give them some things that aren't on this list. And you can kind of say, well, look at the bloodline for the special spells you get. And, and those two classes work similarly in first edition. But like that kind of that obviousness, I think, has been expanded to more classes now than it used to be. Right. And what it helps me as as a GM is when a player says, well, don't I have access to this thing? I can intuitively know, well, no, you don't because you don't have access to divine stuff. Mm -hmm. And divine stuff is all in this one grouping where in the past, like spell lists were sort of shared. And it's just really nice to see the, the separation like that, that just from my own organizational perspective really helped me you know, kind of make a call of like, all right, this type of person does this type of magic and I don't have to worry about is this spell on multiple lists or what have you? Because no, it's just a type of spell. And you don't have to worry about, you know, was this cast by a wizard or a sorcerer? It's like, well, you know, it's it's, the spell is just the spell. Mm -hmm. And the most you'll need to know is maybe the tradition um, it was cast from. That's why I play a fighter. (laughs) yeah well even as a fighter you have a lot of really cool new stuff that you can do now that you couldn't do before hey i i have one last question here that um was perplexing me all during the play testing Mm -hmm. how was that session where somebody you know that those open sessions where you guys just get to talk and someone went let's make goblins a class (laughs) <laughs> and let's make them alchemists too, to where they throw bombs. Yeah. How did was that? Was that just like everyone went genius? We can't wait to do this. <laughs> so I know that one of the things that was kind of a, an idea in people's heads in the early going, and a lot of this is you know kind of ephemeral. It's not like well, here's a mandate, but it's kind of like a here's something we might want to do. How could we do this? One of the thing those things that was in people's minds was, 
We don't want it to just look like it's the exact same loadout of things as the first edition book. It's just the same ancestries. It's just the same classes just repeated. So the idea of having like another class in there, having another ancestry in there, were kind of pretty prominent in the early going. The goblin part of it, there were some ideas as like, well, what if we put in orcs or what if we put in hobgoblins? And eventually I think they just were like, look, everybody knows Paizo's goblins. They've yep. seen them a million times. <laughs> yep. They've oh, played I have the mask. They've played them on free RPG day for several years now. Yeah. They're popular. We know people enjoy playing them and have fun playing them. Why isn't that just the ancestry? And I think at least for me personally, like I'm not the I'm not the one who makes those decisions. That's usually like the the managers, the executive team who makes the final call on that kind of thing. But for me it was like oh, there's no way we're doing anything other than goblins. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just <laughs> you know mm-hmm. Yeah, why muddy the water? Yeah. <laughs> do, do you want to do you want to have a, a you know a hobgoblin on the back cover of the book, or do you want to have a, a cool Wayne Reynolds goblin on the back? Of the book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and then the uh, the the new iconic alchemist kind of came from alchemist was kind of a, a later edition that was one that was a little more back and forth on because it's like we knew we had kind of a short list of popular classes. We knew the witch was popular. We knew the oracle was popular. We knew the alchemist was popular. And we had actually done an organized play survey that that showed us like those were kind of at the top of the list. Oh my so, goodness, you're right. The witch isn't there. And I hear people talk about their witches all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We we knew the witch was like definitely going to make it into advanced player's guide at that mm. point. It's like mm-hmm. if she's not in the core rule book, she's going to be in there. But we ended up going with the alchemist partially because they were really popular, but also because we felt like if we wanted to do alchemy right, it should be a core part of the game from the start. Because then you can really flesh out what alchemy is and, you know, set it apart from magic and the the traditions of magic and kind of say, here's alchemy, here's this other thing. Get everybody more familiar with it. Because the first edition alchemist kind of says, well, I'm kind of using a spell list, but they aren't really working the same way spells do. Right. And we kind of want it to feel like a more natural part of the world by presenting it as its own thing in the in the core. Yeah. And it's really neat to to see how that that structural change just really gives a lot of life to alchemy. Because as a player, I intuitively understand what the alchemist is doing now. Yeah. Whereas in the past, it was like, uh, you could feel the schism. You could feel like it was not quite, the system didn't quite support the alchemist in the past. Not natively. Yeah. You had to really kind of wrap your head around it. Yeah, it felt it felt a little bolted on. And so that was something we really wanted to have, have be different this time around. Well, it yeah. was a blast to play. That's what I can Great. tell you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I got another one. Oh, you yeah. do? And I'll leave you alone after this. Okay. <laughs> um, it was just kind of another thing I've been running into as I play some different RPGs is during the character creation, there's also the background creation process mm-hmm. where you're actually just rolling through charts to um, kind of create this backstory yeah. for your character. This still feels very organic in the sense that I can just roll a character and play, or mm-hmm. I can sit down, as you talked about, looking at the um, Age of Lost Omens. I can get some uh, material back there for my character. Also, as I, I look at some of the, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the name, the Ancestry and Background area, there's areas I can fill that in. Was that even a thought process about adding in kind of a very structured background ability rolling through? Uh, I think we wanted to keep it pretty simple and quick for the core rulebook, but we do have something similar to that in the Game Mastery Guide. Uh, We've got a section called Deep Backgrounds that kind of has some tables and can kind of, you 
you build out uh, some elements for a background step by step, and then you can pick which ones you want to use at the end. Yeah. That's kind of a, a variant variant rule that you can use in uh, in your home games. Learn sure. something new every day. Yeah, I like that, and and it, that also really helps uh, <clears throat> GMs out there to flesh out your NPC. Just roll through mm-hmm. some background charts real quick, and all of a sudden, this NPC has a lot more life than just standard yeah. shopkeep selling potions. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that you put it at least in the GM section. That's really helpful. Yeah. Well, and we did um, last Friday, we did a three action game night stream where we did like in a half hour, we would make somebody's character. Then we did kind of like an Iron Chef thing where we (laughs) chat compiled an adventure, some adventure elements that Jason had to turn into an adventure and run immediately. Yes. Love it. But we found that like you can do some really kind of strange collections of, uh, of backgrounds with your ancestry and class and still come up with something pretty cool. Uh, so you can really get some inventive stuff there that kind of changes expectations. So those are really fun. And, and that's the mark of good, of good descriptive design, because a lot of times people will say, well, I'm going for this one thing. So they pick everything that enforces that one thing. When mm-hmm. really, hey, you know, mix it up a little bit. Like, sure, your character is a sailor, but maybe they spent some amount of time as a scout, yeah, you know, on the land. So maybe they have something a little different there. And and you don't have to only pick, you know, nautical themed things. You can branch out a little bit and still end up with a character that is mostly based from the sea. Yeah. I love that. I, I think that's really cool. And it's neat to see you guys do that kind of effort so that other folks who are getting engaged with this know, oh, well, there's actually enough chops in here, enough flexibility that I could end up with a hodgepodge of things, but still have a quite viable and and interesting character that comes out of it. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, Logan, is there anything else that that you would like to to say or or bring up? Maybe top of mind for you or top of mind for Paizo, things that you guys are really passionate about? Uh, the Game Mastery Guide is going to come out early next year. The Advanced Players Guide is going to be at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have the Best Year 2 in between there. Uh, yeah. If you need some more monsters. As far as myself, you can find me on my Twitter account. That's at Logan Bonner. You'll also, not every week, but you'll frequently find me on our Twitch stream on Pathfinder Fridays. Yes. Um, and we occasionally do special events like that, 3-Action Game Night. But uh, a lot of Fridays, we kind of just uh, go on to talk about some some various stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Man, cool stuff. How fun and, is that? And we're going to we're gonna link in description below, folks. So if you want to follow Logan on Twitter, want to tune in for their Friday night streams, uh, we're going to put all that down below. So very easy to tune in and, and join them in those enterprises. Dude, Logan... Thanks so much for coming on and making your making yourself available for us. This, this means so much to us, and we just really value your time and, and appreciate that you uh, gave some of it to us today. All right. It was great being on here. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, everyone who's been listening, as always, have fun and play well. May all your roles be crits. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, David Gillespie, with music provided by Taylor Guillory. Our web presence is managed by Amy Nelson. And if you like our style, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It's the best way to help people find us. Most importantly, though, feel welcome to connect with us on Twitter, our Facebook group, Discord server, our Friday night Twitch streams, and our website, all under the name High Shelf Gaming. We really look forward to talking and playing games with you.